This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvalis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And soon we're going to be joined at the party by Kath Sullivan. Kath's the ABC's national rural reporter and she's going to join us obviously to talk about Barnaby Joyce's comeback as national party leader, what it means politically. But before Kath joins us, I can't wait that long, PK, it's the last (laughs) sitting day of the parliament for the next five weeks. Barnaby is back three years after he faced that sustained political pressure to quit because, you know, he had an affair with his staffer. He was facing allegations of sexual assault, which he strongly denied. I have to say, I never really thought a comeback was going to be possible or likely, given the circumstances of his exit. Look, Fran, you're right. There was a lot of controversy around Barnaby Joyce, but actually the reason he ultimately stood down was the allegation in relation to sexual harassment Mm. that he has denied. It wasn't the affair. And I think that's really important. The affair happened and it was revealed and it certainly made life very difficult for him. Also, the the allegations about moving around the staffer who is now his partner. Yeah, and we got the uh, whole bonk ban thing from Malcolm correct. Turnbull Correct. So all of that did happen, but that's not why he stood down. It was an allegation of sexual harassment which made his leadership untenable. Now, the Nationals did an investigation over six months. It's come to nothing. He denies it strongly and his career has been resurrected. You say you didn't think it was going to happen. Well, I was certain he would rise again. Yeah, right. Certain. There you um, go. And I'm not being a smart ass, like, oh, I just... Outran me again, PK. No, I hardly ever outrun you. Um, Although this one, okay, I did. I was sure he was going to come back and I feel really vindicated because I've always said it, right? Because he is relentless. He hasn't stopped from day one, the day he lost the job, he was campaigning. He didn't even go through a period of, of stopping briefly. It has been relentless, his campaign to get this job back. And it was made easier because the guy who won the the leadership, Michael McCormack, after Barnaby Joyce stepped down, was, I'm going to just call it for what it is, pretty politically hopeless. Mm. And because he was pretty politically hopeless, Barnaby was able to mount a case that he had the cut through to be the, you know, ultimately the Nationals leader again. And he was very smart. He Smart politically is how I'm using the term. Yeah. He was savvy. He really, really exploited the weaknesses of Michael McCormack. And it was really a perfect storm that allowed him to rise again three years after losing the job. And the thing is, to me, it demonstrates the short-term nature of politics. How many times have we seen people resurrected? This is not the first time uh, Susan Lee, who is now the Environment Minister, 
had lost her job. I think we're about to see Bridget McKenzie, who lost her job because of sports rorts, come back. People come back. Oh, they do. But some of these comebacks are more contentious and some don't come back, depending on the circumstances. And we're going to talk about this with Kath. I know the, the pushback from some National Party women around the country to the revival of Barnaby Joyce's leadership. It's those circumstances that I thought would really get in his way. Not to mention the fact that, you know, I'm pretty sure Scott Morrison might not have been that keen because Michael McCormick's, you know, you're right, he was pretty politically hopeless and that in a way made him an easier National Party coalition sort of partner to deal with because he he seemed pretty malleable. Like Scott Morrison definitely had the upper hand and took the running on issues that the Nats would normally want to own around drought, for instance, and things like that. Um, But there's no doubt too, it's going to make um, some tension. It's already making frictions in the coalition party room over Australia's climate targets because we've just seen Scott Morrison basically moving all over the world stage, talking about, you know, preferably moving towards 2050 net zero targets. We know Barnaby Joyce is opposed to that. And um, I think that, you know, what really happened and, and the first stage we saw of this was when Keith Pitt, the resources minister, came out on RM Breakfast and basically declared the Nats weren't going to go for it. He was standing up Almost, you know, at the same time or within 24 hours of Scott Morrison saying on the world stage this was his preferable position, here's Keith Pitt saying the National Parties aren't going to do it. Now I think that was really just part of the trap that was all around, elevating Barnaby Joyce back to the top job. What do you think? Yeah, I think the issue around net zero emissions by 2050 has been um, the Trojan horse, the straw man uh, for getting Barnaby Joyce back. I do think it's one of the factors, but it is not all of the story. I do think ultimately this is a personality story and policy was a a sort of proxy issue to galvanise the campaign around Mm. him. When you say personality story, you mean because I think it's a political story, as, as you've alluded to, because the party room are worried about the shooters and fishers in rural and regional New South Wales. They, they really want to take some of those mining seats off Labor in New South Wales and think they can. They really want to hold all those seats in Queensland that Labor lost last time. And so that's a political goal and the personality they think is matched to that is Barnaby oh, Joyce. Oh, yes, that's what I mean. Absolutely, the way you just framed it. So it's, it's the personality of Barnaby Joyce they think has the cut through to achieve that. And... Also that he will muscle up to the Prime Minister and do product differentiation. Now, some of it, I reckon, is all smoke and mirrors, quite frankly, uh, ultimately. But it doesn't matter because for the party room, the Nationals party room, they see that Barnaby Joyce provides the impression, as you say, compared to his Michael McCormack, that he is um, really really different to the Liberals and is prepared to go in and fight over certain issues with the Liberals. And, you know, I I reckon I wouldn't be surprised if we land at the same place that maybe Michael McCormack may have landed at at the end on things like net Mm. zero emissions, you know, carve out for agriculture or something. But doesn't matter because Barnaby Joyce will provide the the sort of circus tricks which send a message to voters yeah. that he really cares and, about them. And and Matt Canavan, who was the resources minister, he's in the National Party room. He's basically Barnaby Joyce's biggest booster. He's the one who moved the spill motion in the party room this week that paved the way for the change. I mean, he's making no secret of that. I, I spoke to him on RM Breakfast this morning. This is on Thursday. And he, you know, talked to him about the move that the Nats 
Roberts made basically ambushing the Senate over Murray-Darling Basin amendments that the Nats want to move about water buybacks. He basically said, oh, well, you know, yeah, we do these things to, to get attention essentially in rural Australia. And he also, I mean, he has been absolutely out there against net zero emissions. Matt Canavan said a month or two ago, if you bring in net zero, it will smash regional communities. So when I spoke to him this morning, he said, you know, the Nats never supported this target and they're not proposing one either. Now, he's hedging his bets a bit. But what I find interesting from someone like Matt Canavan is how when he argues this, he argues it from the position of the mining communities. He doesn't argue it from the position of Perhaps who you might think of the Nats' traditional support base, the farmers. He said yesterday, listen to this quote, yesterday, exempting agriculture from a scheme like this doesn't help the coal miners that will be out of work. We see it through different eyes. We see it through the eyes of coal workers' jobs and people working in power plants. So in other words, he's saying we're going after those mining seats in New South Wales. Look out, Joel Fitzgibbon. Yeah, that's exactly the message. Look, let's park this conversation and, and continue it with Kath Sullivan, who is an expert on the Nationals, really, um, in a moment, and just touch on what is now becoming front and centre of the political debate and the biggest story in the country, which is the unfolding COVID-19 situation in New South Wales. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. We don't know if there'll be more measures introduced so far. Premier Gladys Berejiklian has been reluctant to go to a, a lockdown, but there are lots of restrictions that have been introduced. And at the same time, I think, Fran, we've had this conversation before. It has demonstrated some of the weaknesses with things that the federal government does have an eye on, the vaccine rollout again, and also hotel quarantine, which continues to be an issue given the leaks we're saying or, or the systems around it in this case, the limousine driver that began it all in New South Wales. Now, I think we all need New South Wales to be successful because there is fatigue over lockdowns. But ultimately, if they're not, I think this is going to be a really difficult story for them and also for the rest of the country because we have been so successful at suppressing COVID so far. Clearly, people want that and we are just not vaccinated enough to look after our population. No, that's the underlying story, and Gladys Berejiklian is making that plain at every turn. Clearly, the Premier of New South Wales and the Health Minister, Brad Hazard, who himself is now in isolation because there's been a positive test amongst a politician in Parliament House in New South Wales, so it's it's sort of spreading, very worried about the Delta deviant, uh, Delta deviant, Delta variant. It is a deviant. <laughs> it's a deviant variant, the Delta variant, because it is so contagious. We have a number of examples now of what the health minister describes as fleeting contact. So used to, at the very beginning of this, as one of the premiers reminded us, they used to talk about, you know, a 15 minute contact. Well, this is like a 10, 15 second contact. So it's much more contagious, much more dangerous. Gladys Berejiklian, you know, she's been given the, the gold medal for managing community transmission without lockdowns. At the moment, she's still trying to do that. She doesn't want to um, put put Sydney into lockdown. She's asking people to use their common sense and follow the, the rules of more masks. And for the first time, people in Sydney are wearing masks inside in their workplaces. We've never had to do that before. So there are measures, but not lockdowns. That, of course, 
puts an immediate contrast for how different states are responding. I'm not sure that matters, but I'm also not sure that we'll be able to, New South Wales will be able to get out. I'm in Sydney, we'll be able to get out of this without some kind of lockdown. It's a matter of if it comes, will it be a short one or will it be a long mm. one? If it comes, will it be proven with hindsight that the state waited too long to do it? We just don't know the answer to this yet. What I think is interesting for us, because, you know, we're a federal political podcast, is the absence of the Commonwealth in all of this. Now, of course, that's not a new story. Uh, The states have been managing the COVID crises in their own states and territories. But I feel like it's becoming more and more pronounced all the time that this is somewhere where I feel Scott Morrison is quite absent. Now, I know at the moment he probably seems even more absent because he's literally absent. Yeah. He's quarantining in the lodge after returning from the G7. Right? He so, is you know, only on the screen on Zoom, yeah, living fa- large over the parliament. To be fair, and we must be, that that's... You know, you can't get out of the lodge, right? No. So he can't be showing, um, demonstrating, you know, action man at this stage with a mask. But I do I do think that it's becoming more pronounced, just the ad hoc nature of this. In the second year of dealing with this pandemic, it seems pretty tragic, to be honest, that we have um, such different rules in different places still, no nationally coherent sort of strategy. I feel a little bit disappointed that we haven't seen a better strategy around all of that, even the, See, even I, national protocols around um, quarantining. The fact that I mentioned him, but the the man uh, driving the limousine, not the same protocols across the different states and territories. I, yeah. I think that's odd. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe in that case, that's true. Not the same protocols or not mandatory protocols. And these things should be mandated. And I would have thought they would have been mandated by a central, you know, declaration from that, the health committee of experts, the chief medical officers who, who recommend to the states, rather than leaving it to the states. I think the federation that's shown up uh, one of the weaknesses. But I also think that Perhaps the differences in whether, you know, Melbourne locks down straight away, Sydney doesn't. Maybe they're overstated. In a sense, we all know the drill now. We all know the tools in the toolkit. It's contact tracing, which has really sharpened up right across Australia, it seems to me. It's testing, tracing, it's masks, it's social distancing, and ultimately it's going to be vaccination. Lockdowns are in there. It's just about when they're used. So I think the differences are getting narrower And I think ultimately, really, all we need to be looking at now is vaccination because that's going to be the answer and that's where the ultimate weakness is still right now. Certainly is. Now, Fran, I've had my second vaccination now and I've turned up to do this podcast even though I feel (laughs) terrible. So if I sound a little uh, out of it occasionally, um, apologies. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Kath Sullivan, the ABC's National Rural Reporter. Welcome to the party room. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Kathy, it's great to have you here. Barnaby is back. We've just been talking about this. The Nats are rejoicing. Get it? Um, <laughs> boom, boom. But it's not, it's not a university popular, even in the Nats, is it? It's not a universally oh, uh, popular move. 
Absolutely not. And you can see that in the way that the vote's being dissected in the days following the vote in in the Nationals party room. This is clearly a party divided. And I think that goes to the rank and file members, as well as the industry groups that tend to deal with the Nationals on a regular basis. These groups that represent the farming and mining interests seem to be very much divided about what Barnaby Joyce, what his return to the Deputy Prime Ministership will actually mean. And the other element, of course, is the the questions around the optics for women, uh, rural women not happy, not all, it's not a sort of one voice, but but certainly many... The messages that I've received this week from all over Australia, I think you absolutely cannot discount the network of rural women and the woman who actually made the allegations of sexual harassment against Barnaby Joyce back in 2018. The tentacles run deep across all states and territories and I think this will be a major factor, not just for female voters but for male voters as well. So, Kath, why did they do it then? Why did the National Party Room do this and they did it with some flamboyance. Um, why didn't they think it would be an issue? And, ha- you know, have they made the right political calculation for them? I mean, you know, this seems like a decision made at this time when the parliament has been engaged this year in the allegations made mm-hmm. by Brittany Higgins and the, and the aftermath of that. It seems it- odd that it was made without much justification ready for that. Well, isn't that the extraordinary thing? Because we can't actually see any significant policy differences between a Michael McCormack-led National Party and a Barnaby Joyce-led National Party. So I think this vote, this decision to back him in, and we know that at least 11 people in that party room think it's a good idea, and that's all it takes, uh, think that the style and the cut-through of somebody like Barnaby Joyce will help them when the election comes around. And you asked about the question of timing. I mean, it is a different place to when Barnaby Joyce did resign over those sexual harassment allegations and I do think it's really important we know that is what actually led to him stepping down as leader of the party you know he's had citizenship issues Uh, there was the extramarital affair with his staff and now partner Um, but it was the allegations that saw him step down to clear the air for then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull but I do think that Barnaby Joyce's style and his his straight talking certainly does appeal to some people. It's just really offensive to others. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty extraordinary, though, that he did get over the line. I I think that he was always going to rise again, but it's still extraordinary that it happened now. How much is the behaviour of Michael McCormack to do with that, the way that he handled himself as acting Prime Minister? Because it seems to me like that was the the final push from the Barnaby camp. I think you can actually mount an argument either way, PK. You could have said that Barnaby was coming every day for the past 18 months or three years or whatever it is. We knew he was ambitious. We knew he wanted to return. And Michael McCormack in some ways did seem like a bit of a sitting duck. And I guess the timing does go a lot to where we are in the political cycle, heading into the winter break, ahead of an election which could come any time between now and May. And knowing that a couple of Barnaby Joyce's supporters are set to to leave the parliament. At least that's what we thought. They I noticed. Were. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that Phil Curry is now suggesting George Christensen might be rethinking his uh, his political future. And Kath, what about? I mean, Barnaby Joyce knew this issue, the the women's issue, would be a thing he would have to announce, have an answer for. So after he was uh, resurrected as leader, he came out and said this. I acknowledge my faults. I resigned. I've spent you know, three years on the backbench. 
I don't walk away from uh, making sure that I can be a better person, do a better job. Okay, so that's that's fine as far as it goes, but how do you test that? How does he prove he's a changed man? What does doing a better job look like? And is that enough? Well, this is given be the a allegations bit... that he was facing, which he denied. Which have sort of um, been unanswered in a way to the National Party. The complaint was made to the Federal National Party and the conclusion was really inconclusive, if you like. And I have heard from some people this week saying that if Barnaby Joyce is legitimate about what he says, about being a changed person, he'll come out, he'll apologise and he'll be prepared to reopen the investigation into those allegations (laughs) so that we can have a resolution once and for all. I don't think that's likely to happen, but it is a very difficult message for other nationals in the party to sell, particularly those like Mark Coulton and Michael McCormack and Bridget McKenzie in particular. Um, let's not forget that Barnaby Joyce made some pretty crass remarks about Bridget McKenzie when uh, she first entered the parliament, and certainly plenty of people were prepared to remind me of that this week. Oh, I, think it, one- I think it's pretty clear, though, that the National Party is not going to reopen that investigation. Barnaby Joyce, back at the time, called those allegations of sexual harassment spurious and defamatory and, and said that the, the woman at the centre of it, Catherine Marriott, should go to the police. Now, obviously, that was not going to happen. Catherine Marriott said she didn't want to do that. These things are very difficult. It's not going to happen at that level. But what can he do as a leader in the National Party to signal to women that he is, in his words, a better person, a changed man? For a start, what can he do to lead on the response to the well, Kate I think Jenkins he, inquiry, for instance? I think that he really has to come out on the front foot on this issue. And we've heard David Littleproud and Perrin Davey, a couple of nuts, for example, say that if women are concerned or if men are concerned about Barnaby's history, they need to invite him out, come and meet the rank and file members and see him, talk to him one-on-one and get a sense of how he, as he's put it, has changed. So, Kath... That's one issue. The other one is he has to renegotiate a coalition agreement with Scott Morrison and the tensions between the Liberals and the Nationals no doubt will look to be more frosty or look to be more difficult under this change. Uh, McCormack pretty much... It was seen, at least, that he kind of capitulated to um, Scott Morrison, got along with him, and it was all pretty easy for Scott Morrison. But um, Barnaby Joyce is harder to handle. How is that playing out? Wouldn't it be nice to be a fly on the wall for yes. this, uh, the negotiations in this coalition agreement? Well, we will we never, never know. know what happens. We will never know. And isn't democracy a wonderful thing, as the Nationals like to keep telling us? Uh, it, yeah, where is the transparency of this coalition agreement? I know there's plenty of people have been asking for it this time around and uh, for several coalition governments before. We're not going to see it. I mean, the week started out strong. There was uh, suggestions that the Nats would pursue the trade portfolio, something that they've held in the past, obviously very high profile. As the week wore on, we got a sense from PMO that that's unlikely to happen that Barnaby Joyce has got the Nats portfolios to play with and, and he'll have to work around them. And it's really interesting, this idea of energy policy, which has sort of been touted as one thing that perhaps Michael McCormack at least Barnaby Joyce's backers would say Michael McCormack wasn't strong enough on. Uh, I just wonder if whether that might be something that comes up in the coalition agreement. And the other policy area that we saw the Nats uh, really shake up, I guess, or at least attempt to shake up, was in the water space too. And, and of course, opponents of the government saying that 
given the Nats display in the Senate this week, the water portfolio should perhaps return to the Liberals. That was so interesting, wasn't it? It was almost choreographed, almost confected, and I felt like Senator Matt Canavan, the National Party Senator, almost conceded that when he spoke to me today, that an ambush in the Senate, the Nats in the Senate brought some amendments to the Murray-Darling Basin um, bill that they had given no warning to the Libs to. So they hadn't even tried to get Liberal support for it. They just bumped it on in. Of course it, it got voted down, but it really, really, really annoyed their coalition colleagues. You know, they must have known that was going to happen. What What's the sort of the subtext here? Oh, absolutely blindsided the Libs. And again, if you could be a fly on the wall to see Simon Birmingham and Anne Ruston when they realised that the Nats were proposing amendments to a bill which is meant to bring integrity to the Murray-Darling Basin and was actually drafted by the Water Minister Anat Keith Pitt. It, it really is quite extraordinary. And I don't know, can you remember another another episode like that? Hmm. I'm sure there's probably one, Mate. and I'm sure Barnaby <laughs> Joyce might have been involved in it some years ago, actually, but I just can't bring it to mind right Did now. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, th- that's the thing. He, it's kind of often, they're often linked. Well, he used to pride himself on how many times before he was a front bencher he crossed the, ban- he crossed the floor um, as a National Party senator in the way, way distant past. But to propose amendments to a bill that your party has drafted... Oh, I know. Uh, it and he's seemed- a Nationals minister. And the what a minister position, is a nationals minister. What a position to put Keith Pitt in. I'm looking forward to his, his next media outing to, to find out. I mean, his statement in itself was extraordinary. He said, these amendments are nationals policy. I'm a member of the cabinet. I support government policy. What, what does that even mean? <laughs> It and means I just, he thinks both things, okay? <laughs> he thinks both things. It depends which quite, room he's in. It's quite a nuanced discussion. But I, I so do, nuanced. I do wonder um, how the Nationals involved in these amendments. It included the New South Wales Senator Perrin Davey, Bridget McKenzie from Victoria and the Lower House MPs, uh, Damien Drum and Anne Webster. I wonder how they'll reflect on what went down yesterday. Uh, I noticed that there has been support, you know, on social media and talkback radio in their communities saying thank you to to them for standing up for Mm. their communities and and this is water is a massive issue that's what it's all about right mm, exactly but in the end what's changed yeah that's right but interestingly and i was saying this earlier with fran so much of the legacy of the way barnaby joyce operates is to look like you're dissenting to be able to go look we did this and, and and even what's if the phrase you don't all hat no cattle deliver. <laughs> is that the phrase all hat no cattle I love that expression and it was put to Bridget McKenzie yesterday that perhaps this this episode on water was all hat and no cattle and I do think when when we try to dissect why it is that the Nats have switched from Michael McCormack to Barnaby Joyce style seems to be um, and presentation and it seems to be a significant factor much more so than policy and, and and to talk to people who dealt with Barnaby Joyce when he was um, well agriculture minister first and foremost but also water minister their policy areas that I, I'm most interested in uh, you had to go a long way to find somebody who remembered him fondly in terms of his ministry and management of the department and, and policy 
But then much easier to find people who said, yes, he cuts through with people. We can understand his language, something that we don't often get from other politicians in Canberra. What you see is what you get with Barnaby. So uh, I just think it's, yeah, why do you think they've changed leaders? Kath, all I'm saying, yeah. if you're accusing our politicians or some of them of being <laughs> style over substance, I am shocked. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> They're not the only part of society, Fran, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Kath, you are such a fountain of knowledge. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me in the party room. Thanks so much. See you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Linton, who writes, with trust and overall opinion of politicians at its lowest since the late 1970s, deals that don't pass the pub test, a federal ICAC forever being kicked down the road, a question time that is a joke full of Dorothy Dix's, disgusting behaviour and disrespectful responses to questions. Will we see a change in the behaviour of our political elite and have them held accountable or is this our new political dystopia? Well, <laughs> I love that loaded question. That's a great question, Full of Linton. colour and movement. Yes, it was full of colour and movement and traps. Um, and it's not a new political dystopia, I would argue. I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time now, uh, the degrading of the trust in our political leaders. There's been a lot of discussion over the last what, decade, probably, about the impact of social media and the fast news cycle, you know, the 24-hour news cycle uh, and the impact of that. That's part of it. I think there are moves. We will get a federal ICAC, I believe. Um, there is momentum for that. It's whether our federal politicians vote to make it a really effective one or not. That's what we've got to keep a watch out for. We have some sp Speaker of the House and President of the Senate at the moment who are doing a pretty good job in Parliament and trying to keep a handle on the Dorothy Dixon questions that are jokes and the answers to the real questions that are not good enough. So there's some improvement there. We've got the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, launching this investigation into the, as you would say, disgusting behaviour um, in the Parliament. So hopefully that will make a difference. So there are signs of change and in fact, the COVID-19 pandemic has, in a funny way, restored some trust in politicians. That what was seen from the Australia Talk survey, that the trust more broadly in our institutions and our political leaders has risen a bit, not enough, but a little mm. bit. And I think we've discussed this before on the podcast, PK, that, you know, that we've seen things like the National Cabinet generally getting a tick of approval from the voters and doing something to restore trust. But, you know, that's hard won and, and it's hard fought to hang on to it and things like lack of movement on quarantine or slow vaccination rollouts will destroy that fledgling trust in no time. So politicians need to be on their toes. Yeah, I, I agree with you that we're going to see some sort of federal integrity commission. Whether it has teeth is really the overwhelming yeah, exactly. question, isn't it? In terms of behaviour, I think we made the point a little earlier, didn't I, in the podcast that I think we've got very short attention spans and you see the resurrection of politicians who lose their jobs. I think it goes to that, actually. Uh, I think, yeah, there could be a huge story, a lot of outrage, and then, up, oh, we're over it. Yeah. You know, it, it. And I do think that's sometimes troubling. I think it's a real problem. So quickly. I think it's a real problem and it's a, a trick and a trap for all of us. And, you know, that's our job, you and I and all our colleagues, to be mindful of it because mm. the pressure and is to get to the next story.
yes, the pressure is to get to the next story, and there are so many stories, but um, you should never drop the ball in terms of scrutinising. These politicians with enormous amounts of power, look, send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. And PK, before we go today, I do really want to single out some phrases that have really taken my fancy this week. They're my phrases of the week. I don't know, maybe this is a new segment. You never know. It's the this one from the health department saying, call it, talking of the national vaccination allocation horizon to ramp up the delivery of the vaccine by 2021. The national vaccination allocation horizon, if you look beyond that, all that means is targets without wanting to say the word. And the other of my favourite phrases was, we live in this resource-constrained environment, aka not enough Pfizer vaccine ordered. We've got to be on the watch for these kind of phrases, don't we? <laughs> Understatement. Oh, God, it's it's really... Why? Who comes up with this crap? Just don't want to say the word target. Just don't want to make admissions like we didn't order enough Pfizer. It's... um. It's gobbledygook. Yeah. On that note. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.